EU Confidential gets started right after this message. Today's episode is presented by Google. Hi, this is Christina. People and businesses everywhere are looking for ways to help the planet. Google recently shared new ways people can use our products to make sustainable choices, from choosing eco-friendly routes to searching greener flights. Now, I'm fully aware that this is a decision which creates an enormous degree of emotion. And yes, we we are interfering with you know the private sphere of people, but there's the greater good, and that's public health. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor. Back from an autumn break, having swapped the blue skies of Marseille for the political puzzles of Brussels. Thanks to Sarah Wheaton and to Matt Karnichnik for filling in so excellently while I was away. Our core crew is back this week. You'll hear from Reem and from Matt in just a moment. Each of us has an interesting interview to bring you. The voice you heard at the top of the podcast belongs to Alexander Schallenberg, the new-ish Chancellor of Austria, who spoke to Matt earlier this week about his country's controversial decision to make coronavirus vaccines mandatory. You'll also hear from France's Europe Minister, Clément Bonne, about plans for the French presidency of the Council of the EU. And we'll bring you a conversation I really enjoyed having with Luc van Middelaar, political theorist, former EU official and distinguished author of a series of books on the EU. You'll hear about his new one, Pandemonium, on Europe's handling of the coronavirus crisis. Perhaps one of the most striking features of this crisis and the sentiments we had in spring 2020 was solitude, geopolitical solitude. But first, let's get to our podcast panel. So it's a warm welcome back to the originals, uh, the core podcast gang, Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello, all. It's good to be back. Great to see you. And welcome back also to Matt Karnichnik. Hi, Matt. Hi. Uh, joining us from Berlin. Thanks very much also for filling in for me one of the weeks uh, that I was away. I noticed you really went big on the whole sort of personality thing, kind of amped it up. You know, it's it's a little bit difficult. Uh, you know, I didn't have a lot to work with there. Easier for some people than others, yeah. but uh, you know, appreciated the attempt. Um, anyway, uh, great to have you both with us. We've got a lot to get through. I was uh, saying just before we started recording, it's a bit like a little, a little bit like a party where each of us has brought something and each of us has brought an interview. And um, but before we get to those. Um, Matt, we're recording on Wednesday evening and uh, the big uh, breaking news of the day is that the three parties that have been in talks to form the next German government have reached a coalition deal. SPD, Grüne und FDP haben sich in den Verhandlungen auf einen gemeinsamen Koalitionsvertrag verständigt und damit auf ein neues Regierungsbündnis. Do you want to give us just a, a quick rundown of, of what we know about what they've agreed and, and what um, kind of stands out for you on, you know, first reading? A quick rundown of 176 pages, is it? Yeah, yeah. if you could just uh, do it in 30 seconds, that'd be fine. As long as the Great Gatsby, apparently. Yeah, I noticed or that. Longer. An interesting reference. Longer. Yeah. But I think the, the bottom line is this, is that it's going to be very expensive. Olaf Scholz, the new chancellor, has said that he wants a decade of investment to basically remake Germany's infrastructure in terms of its uh, digital backbone, which anybody who's been to Germany in the last 20 years knows it needs to be replaced effectively, but also 
in terms of the train system, uh, you know, of the t- entire energy infrastructure, which is, you know, in this ongoing transformation towards renewable energy. This is going to cost a lot of money, obviously, and the question is where it's going to come from, because even as they say they're going to invest all of this money, uh, they're also saying they're going to stick to Germany's debt break as of 2023, which means that you know normally you would have to raise taxes in order to make these investments. They're saying they're not going to raise taxes, which is something that the third party in this coalition, the Free Democrats, have resisted very strongly. So I think there are a lot of a lot of question marks around how realistic uh, this this document will be in the long run, especially given the kind of murky outlook now economically with the pandemic coming back in a big way, inflationary pressures remaining quite strong in, in Germany and elsewhere in Europe, problems with the supply chain in the Western world in particular. So I think, you know, this is something really d- d- directed at the party bases which for the Greens, for example, their members need to approve it before the government can actually take office. And so it's almost a kind of advertising brochure, I think, for the the rank and file of these parties. Reem, any questions, anything uh, strike you or anything you want to ask Matt about the whole thing? Well, what I do know is that French officials have been waiting for this coalition deal for a long time and have been keeping a very close tabs on it, in particular as it pertains to uh, the coalition's position on uh, nuclear deterrence. And what I had seen is that in terms of strategic autonomy, this coalition agreement uh, talks about strategic autonomy in about all sorts of sectors except for defense. So can you just Tell us a bit more about that, Matt. How do you think, uh, you know, what do you think is going to actually end up being in that deal in reality when it comes to strategic autonomy and, and that defense component? So, well, in fact, they avoided using the phrase strategic autonomy, which is seen as a provocation to some people, and have replaced it with another euphemism, which is strategic sovereignty. Which I think sort of speaks for itself because people can read into that what they will. I do not think that the Germans are signaling to the French in any way that they, you know, want to embrace European nuclear sovereignty uh, going forward. Just the opposite, because they also stress the importance of the transatlantic relationship for German security and of NATO going forward. But this was, you know, I think very typical of what we've seen in the past and what we're going to see in the future in terms of German foreign policy. So I don't think we're going to see a big change here. Although I think in terms of German defense spending, um, there are a lot of questions about, you know, whether they will meet the targets that the previous government had set. Right. There's talk of, of, you know, respecting or meeting NATO commitments, but it doesn't specifically mention the 2% of GDP uh, spending target, which, you know, the US and others are very keen for them to meet. Well, they've come up with a new target, which is 3%, but they throw all kinds of other things into that uh, basket, including development aid and and Mm. that kind of stuff. So it's all very murky. Just maybe we should briefly touch on personalities. We don't know the names of all the ministers yet, Matt, but we do know the key ones or some of the key ones, and they're pretty much as expected, right? Uh, yes, I think the main offices are pretty pretty clear now with the finance ministry expected to go to Christian Lindner, the 
economy ministry, which will be expanded to include a lot of environmental issues. We'll go to Robert Habeck, who's co-leader of the Greens, and the foreign ministry will go to the other co-leader, Annalena Baerbock, who many will remember from her run for for chancellor. Right. So Olaf Scholz is as chancellor. So the Social Democrats get that job. But a lot of the other uh, kind of big jobs underneath him go to the other coalition partners. And there are some some names we're still waiting for. There did not seem to be a mad rush to take the health ministry, as I think a lot of people looked at those German coronavirus uh, numbers and thought that maybe that was not something they, they wanted to take on. So we'll see who ends up with that. Possibly by the time people are listening to this, we'll know more. But let's move now to something that you did earlier this week, Matt, when you interviewed the Austrian Chancellor, Alexander Schallenberg. And Austria is also a country which is really uh, struggling on the coronavirus front at the moment. Um, But first, set the scene for us a little bit in terms of of where you spoke to him. Well, I spoke to him in his office in Vienna, which is right across from the old Habsburg Palace. Schallenberg sits in very kind of regal surroundings, as most uh, Austrian politicians do. And it was there in his uh, very modernly furnished office that uh, we sat down for a chat. Okay, and I believe you began by just asking him to outline the measures that the government has taken, the authorities have taken, because I know they consult regionally as well. Um, But maybe just set those out for us first, what Austria has done, the kind of pretty drastic uh, steps that it's taken, and then we'll hear his explanation for why he decided to take those steps. So last Friday, Austria announced that it was going to impose uh, Europe's first mandatory vaccine regimen and at the same time would start a three-week lockdown, which is not as strict as some of the lockdowns that we've seen in Europe over the past year, but it was still, you know, I think pretty shocking to people that this was going to be necessary after having come out of, uh, you know, what for all of Europe has been a very difficult uh, 12 months. Let's hear uh, Alexander Schallenberg on why he decided to take that measure and the other measures that you've mentioned. Oh, I didn't take it lightheartedly, and it was a difficult decision. Obviously, we were of the opinion uh, during summertime that we have enough vaccination in Austria. We had campaigns running from the government. We had, had experts, media, trying to, to explain to the public why it is sensible to take the vaccination, to get out of this, this pandemic. And luckily, we have the feeling that we still have 66% only of the population who got the vaccination. And that's why we had the feeling that in order to increase substantially this number, we have to go down the road, which we already did on other vaccines. We had the smallpox compulsory vaccination. We had compulsory vaccination in the past. Many other countries have it on other um, areas like yellow fever and so on. Hepatitis, I believe you call it. And so we took this decision. We didn't take it lightheartedly, but I hope that it will have the effect to get more people to get vaccinated and to get what is extremely important, the booster, because Israel has proven to us that it is the booster that actually breaks the wave. But like in the rest of Europe and Austria, these corona restrictions are very controversial, and the announcement of this mandatory vaccine law uh, triggered mass protest on Saturday with 40,000 people taking to the streets of Vienna. So I asked Schallenberg how he was going to deal with this continued resistance going forward. 
Now, I'm fully aware that this is a decision which creates an enormous degree of emotion. And yes, we we are interfering with, you know, the private sphere of people, but there's the greater good, and that's public health. And we all want to break out of the vicious circle of virus waves and lockdown decisions or lockdown discussions. And uh, people are tired. People want to get out of this. And I'm aware that the emotion is high, but I believe that if we present the law, if we discuss it, if the again, experts coming out and explaining what it is all about, that some of them we can convince. We will never get 100%. In no democracy, in no pluralistic society, we reach 100%. But we have to reach at least a fair share of our society in order to finally let this uh, situation behind us, leave it behind us. And in the end, I asked him what the best case scenario would be and when he thought Austria would be able to say that the measures they've put in place now, which are only going to last for three weeks in terms of the lockdown, are working and and life can begin to go back to normal. Well, the decisions we have been taking is now a very drastic one, a 20-day lockdown for everybody in this country. Then from mid-December on, the lockdown should be lifted for the vaccinated part of the society. It will continue for the non-vaccinated part. And from 1st of February on, we will have a compulsory vaccination. So this is the the agenda we have ahead of us. And I'm actually saddened to a certain degree because in in an open, free society, you shouldn't need to resolve to such measures. But unluckily, it seems to be the case, as was already the case in the past on other vaccinations. And uh, in my ideal world, everybody would be vaccinated before we even get to the 1st of February. Right. And I think you also specifically mentioned the, the winter tourist season and how that might uh, play out. Let's hear his his answer there. Yeah, but I mean, it's going to be a very, no, it's going to be a safe winter because the winter will be for those who are either recovered or vaccinated. So we don't want anybody without any antibodies on our skiing piss. So thank you very much for the conversation. Okay, Matt, we're going to let you uh, jump off and get on with writing a piece about the new German coalition uh, while Reem and I continue. So Matt, for now, thanks very much. Thank you. Well, let's switch now to uh, another scene, another interview. Uh, so go from Vienna to Brussels, where Reem was uh, this week. Um, Reem, why don't you just set the scene for us? Uh, where were you and who were you talking to? Yeah, so Monday night I was uh, co-interviewing with Jakob Hankeville, who is one of the co-authors of the Brussels Playbook, as our Brussels readers or, or more widely know. Uh, we were uh, co-interviewing Clément Bonne, who's the French Secretary of State for European Affairs, but really beyond his junior minister position in the French government, used to be an extremely close advisor to uh, French President Emmanuel Macron and continues to be extremely close to the president, has his ear on all issues uh, Europe-related. And so we interviewed him at a political live event, and it was quite wide-ranging. You know, we had in mind, obviously, uh, France um, about to take over the presidency of the Council of the EU on January 1st. We were keen to get a sense from him uh, what are the real top French priorities. But Clément Beaune uh, summarized the top three uh, as such, the first being uh, climate, uh, so the Fit for 55 package, and in particular, the carbon uh, border adjustment mechanism. The second uh, priority uh, has to do with tech and getting the DSA-DMA package 
through the European Parliament. Okay, I'm just going to interject and hope that I get these right. Digital Services Act and Digital Markets Act. So these are, in kind of very broad brush terms, the the European Commission's attempts to kind of crack down on big tech to kind of be crude about it. And the last one he mentioned, the last priority he mentioned, has to do with the social aspect of uh, Europe and in particular agreeing on some sort of European minimum wage. Uh, as our, some of our listeners might know, this has been part of the conversation in Europe for the last couple of years at least, something that Emmanuel Macron is very keen on. But obviously, there's uh, quite a lot of resistance, especially from uh, the North and what uh, are usually known as the frugal. So let's say uh, the Dutch, the Danes, uh, the Belgians, etc., Yes, one of the interesting things about this debate, certainly when I came to it, is that countries that probably have quite high wages are ones which are sceptical about this, partly because they have a tradition of collective bargaining and they think basically that, you know, wage negotiations should be left there. Um, And so this has proved perhaps more controversial than you might think. One of the things that struck me, uh, Reem, when he was outlining those um, priorities was that they did seem to me like a mix that was also quite handy for the French presidential election campaign, which, as we know, is this very uh, strange situation where these two things are going to be happening concurrently. So France will be the president of the Council of the EU at the same time as Emmanuel Macron is running for re-election, we assume, although he hasn't declared yet. And I think you, you talked to Clément Bonne specifically about that, right? About how, they might, how they're going to juggle these two things. Of course, this is a, a real issue that many, many European policymakers have actually raised with me personally about, you know, how is that going to play into um, the presidency of the Council of the EU. And, and Clément Bonne said, of course not. I will be committed 100% to this. But, uh, to both but, presidential? No, to the presidency of the EU. Yeah. But Clément Bonne... Of course, I would hope as a minister and as a supporter of the president, to be very <laughs> clear and frank, that I will take some time. But, you know, I, I, I will try to yeah. sleep less. <laughs> uh, I want to make very clear that we are committed to this presidency from day one to the final day, June 30th, uh, next year. First, we have meaning prepared. they're not just gonna pay attention to it for the first two months, you know, January, February, and then once Macron announces he is running again, which we're all expecting to happen sometime in February, they're going to turn their political attention to uh, the presidential, the French presidential election and kind of forget about the presidency, or even worse, try to use the presidency of the Council of the EU for some sort of political gain domestically. Now, of course, uh, Clément Bonne is, is going to say something like that, meaning we're not going to politicize the presidency of the Council of the EU. But the reality is the EU you is a real issue in terms of the political debate in France uh, today. Uh, most of the uh, people running against uh, Macron are somewhere on the spectrum of Europe skepticism. So it's going to be very interesting to see how they uh, sort of balance those two for sure. One of the things that struck me about Clément Bone was that he was willing to be a bit critical, first of all, of the European Union itself, of the European Commission, and also to be, at least to an extent, and and, uh, some might argue to an extent that is unusual for someone in his position, also critical of the French government or of European institutions. And there was a couple of examples of that. And one of them was obviously uh, an issue that's a, a big one for France at the moment was the dispute with the UK over fishing licenses, fishing rights, Give us a sense of what you were asking him there and what you made of his answer. 
Well, I pushed him on whether, in a nutshell, the UK had succeeded in turning the fishing uh, issue into a bilateral Franco-British issue as opposed to it being a UK-EU issue in the context of the Brexit deal, uh, which, of course, is what the French keep saying. This is not a bilateral issue. This is an issue with the EU. Uh, but honestly, you know, if you look at uh, the way it's been playing out in, in public, it's only the French who are really uh, having a, a public issue with the UK. You're not hearing from the Dutch or the Belgians, for example, about it. And so when I put it to him this way, he surprised me by saying it should be an EU issue. So it's an EU issue. It should be taken as an EU issue. I think France is asking it for it to be taken as an EU issue. So it should be, which means it's not right now. We have been clear, and I want to be frank. I think it has changed, but I think it was taken not seriously enough mm. in the European Commission initially, a few weeks ago, a few months ago. What has changed now? I think it's seen as a very important issue. To, uh... Which was, to me, really incredible. I think it's the first time we've heard something along these lines so clearly from a French official on the record publicly. Yeah, he was basically saying that the European Commission hadn't stepped up, right, and and hadn't really done enough on this issue. And of course, he said it's better now. But he was, uh, as you say, it still seems very much like a kind of Franco-British spat for for most people looking in. Uh, but it was interesting to hear him actually say, you know, the European Commission didn't get a hold of this in the way that we wanted them to. Okay, great, Reem, we'll let you go now. And uh, we'll turn to our third interview of the podcast in just a moment. But for now, Reem, thanks very much. Thank you. You can watch Reem and Jacob's full interview with Clément Bone on our website. We'll be sure to put a link to it in our show notes. Now, coming up right after a very short break, author Luke van Middelaar talks us through the ups and downs of the EU's response to the coronavirus pandemic. What did it get right? What did it get wrong? And how has Europe changed as a result of this crisis? Stay with us. A message from Google. Companies aren't the only ones asking what more they can do to help the planet. Increasingly, people do too. Recently, Google announced new ways of using our products to make sustainable choices. For example, we're introducing new features to book flights or purchase appliances that have lower carbon footprints. Starting in 2022 in Europe, Google Maps will let you choose the most fuel-efficient driving route. This could save over 1 million tonnes of carbon emissions per year, the equivalent of removing over 200,000 cars from the road. And when people come to Google search with questions about climate change, we'll show information from authoritative sources like the United Nations. It's all part of Google's goal to help 1 billion people make more sustainable choices by 2022. Now, a few weeks ago, I sat down with Luke van Middelaar. He's a Dutch political theorist who's also spent time working in the EU institutions, including as the chief speechwriter to Herman van Rompuy when he was president of the European Council. Van Middelaar has also written some very well-regarded books on the development of the EU. His latest book, Pandemonium, is all about the EU's response to the coronavirus. And I started by asking him what he thought were Europe's biggest successes and biggest failures in tackling the pandemic. I think the failure was the immediate failure to respond quickly and with a, an immediate sense of danger, of course. 
you could say that was a failure of almost all European national governments as well. And in that respect, the EU, let's say Brussels, didn't do much better or worse than the average capital. The biggest successes of the EU came quite quickly in a way after that initial very disappointing uh, moment of bleak, uh, lack of solidarity, closed borders, etc. We're talking February, March 2020. In the space of, let's say, three, four months, the EU put together a rather impressive and remarkable economic response with the Corona Recovery Fund, obviously. Let's say July 2020, that's not a done deal, but basically it's there in principle. And also, maybe even more surprisingly, already June 2020, the decision to jointly purchase vaccines. Now, that's a massive decision. Uh, remarkable because at the start of the crisis, the EU was saying, well, this is all very sorry, but um, it's really not a EU competence. And um, so we can't do much about it. Three, four months later, member states asked EU Commissioner von der Leyen to buy the vaccine for them. What do you think prompted then the EU to become such an engaged actor in this crisis and taking that particular step? What prompted that leap? I think and that's, for me, one of the most fascinating things in this crisis, that it was really the public that caused the EU to act. That there was, at the start of the crisis, starting in Italy and then Spain and other member states as well, really a public outcry, a call for help, for solidarity. The idea that this crisis was so big geopolitically as well, but also affecting every single citizen. We were all scared of either for ourselves or for our dear ones or, or parents. And so the answer that the EU couldn't do anything because of a competence issue or that it was only a matter for national governments to deal with was just not good enough. It was not convincing, it was not credible. And this kind of public outburst of fear, cry for help, for solidarity, just overwhelmed the more reluctant forces. And within the space of months, the EU reacted. And I see that really as a further moment in the series of, of crises, which have all meant that the European Union and EU is becoming more political, uh, less technocratic, closer, therefore, also to people's interests. Mm. And so what do you think then is the legacy of this crisis and the EU's response to this crisis? Of course, in some ways, we're still very much in it and we may be going into you know, a more challenging and testing phase of this crisis again. But what remains after this crisis? How has the EU changed perhaps permanently as a result of it? Well, I think you can distinguish various aspects. I mean, there's the, the policy side of things where obviously the deepening of, of financial integration as a result of the Corona Recovery Fund and everything that it will still bring in the future, including debates on EU taxes and other things, that's pretty big in itself. Mm. Likewise for the decision on vaccines. But I think what is maybe more fundamental is sort of underlying awareness of Europeans and of, of public opinion as well, that we are in this together. And that respect, I think... Perhaps one of the most striking features of this crisis and the sentiments we had in spring 2020 was solitude, geopolitical solitude. The awareness that on the one hand, we were vulnerable in Europe for such a thing as contagious disease, which we thought was something for history, huh? 
we're not very good in Europe at being humble, but in a way it should have humbled us. Days when other countries started to close their borders for us Europeans. But also we felt our, let's say, geopolitical solitude because it was China which came to the rescue. China all of a sudden entered the public sphere in a much more, let's say, impressive fashion for the public at large. When you uh, say came it, to the rescue, you mean through PPE equipment? Yeah, PPE kind of... indeed. Um, there was this moment uh, right at the, at the start of the crisis when Italy asked for help to the rest of Europe officially and none came. This was late February. And then it was a widely mediatized and very visible uh, Red Cross of China, which flew into Rome with PPE in, indeed. Uh, but also in, in, in Serbia, the Czech Republic and, and other places. So there was this almost our mental map of the world went upside down because, I mean, I think, frankly, maybe not younger people, but older people uh, in Europe, they consider China still a third world country. And here it was China helping us. And at the same time, our protector since 1945, the United States, was nowhere to be seen or was in a even a pitiful state itself uh, doing worse uh, than we, at least in those days, with COVID and we were not doing great here in Europe. So, so this was a moment of vulnerability, both in public health and geopolitically. And well, some consequences have been drawn from that. Hence the debates, uh, which uh, you and your colleagues are covering on strategic autonomy and all that. And that is, I think, a concrete follow up of that sentiment of vulnerability. But I think it is also something that will remain with us and that has impacted public opinions and that will find shape in other political decisions as well. Another thing that you mention in the book is this tension within the EU between wanting to have clear values, clear identity, but also wanting to embrace the whole continent. And it seems like those tensions are really coming to a head at the moment, particularly with Poland and Hungary, and particularly most recently with this Polish constitutional tribunal ruling that questions really the kind of legal bedrock of the EU. How serious a, a threat do you think that is to the European Union? And, and can you see a kind of a path out of it? Well, I think it's important to determine what the most fundamental threat is for the EU in this respect. And for me, the fundamental threat is not that the Polish government is questioning the EU's legal supremacy. That's a secondary issue. And by making this into the core issue, the legal supremacy issue, very dear to many in Brussels, in a way, it's a trap we're falling into. Because what is the fundamental issue? The fundamental issue is that the peace government in Warsaw is abolishing constitutional democracy by systematic attacks on the independence of the judiciary, on the constitution as such, one could say. And that should worry the EU as a whole much more than this supremacy issue, of which I do not deny the importance, but it's really secondary, because it means that over time we may find ourselves as Europeans in a union with one Two, there's also Hungary states, which are on the way of becoming autocracies. I'll, mm. I'll, I'll leave it at that. And that, of course, is very awkward because it, it questions really one of the key things which hold us together as Europeans. We have so many divergent views of the world and cultures and languages and all. And 
the kind of minimum is to be able to say we are a club of democracies. Huh? And if that is no longer the case, I think that is more worrying, as I said, than the issue of supremacy. And that cannot really be solved by the EU as such. I think more political, moral, economic pressure, financial pressure could be issued. But at the end of the day, that issue of the future of Poland, just like the future of Hungary, will have to be decided by the Polish electorate in the ballot box, in their case, if I'm not mistaken, at some point in 2023. That will be a moment of truth for Poland and therefore for the EU as a whole. Hmm. One more I wanted to ask you, I'll make this the last one. As you said, you're a political theorist, but you're also someone who has worked very much in politics. You worked for the former European Council president, Herman van Rompuy, as chief speechwriter. You know, you've been a political advisor. So in a sense, you have that practical hands-on experience as well. What do you think other political theorists or political theorists generally, if you can generalise, don't get about how politics is done in reality? Is there a gap? Is there something that surprised you when you moved from theory to practice? Well, I think the, the biggest gap is that, that people underestimated the sheer time pressure under which politicians work. That there are situations where you simply have to decide because something have, has to be done and doing nothing is just irresponsible. And then afterwards you can criticize that one or the other disadvantage or risk had not been foreseen. It's just a matter of responsibility to do something. But I also hope, and with the time I've been outside now, it's another five, six years since I left, also to be able to give the broader view. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Anne. And that's almost all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Before we go, we wanted to give you a quick update on an episode you may have heard earlier this year. In January, we spoke with Dutch documentary filmmaker Nadine van Loon about a project she was working on called Notes from Brussels, a film about some of the challenges facing people, particularly women, working in the so-called EU bubble and about what it takes to thrive personally and professionally in the EU quarter. We're happy to say the film has since been finished and you can see it yourself in upcoming showings in December at the Cinema Galerie here in Brussels. We'll be sure to add a link to that as well in our show notes. So that's now both a movie and a comedy show that we, us here and you out there, have played a small part in bringing to life. Makes me wonder what's next. A blockbuster novel set in the Director General for Financial Services or maybe a musical based on the Conference on the Future of Europe. Watch out, Mamma Mia. We're coming for you. That's it for this week. Feedback always welcome. The email is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to Lucas Kotkamp to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>